Will you please pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your story and for the opportunity we are given uh, to dive into it with one another. God, right now we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us. And God, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So how many of you were a little confused when you heard joy to the world when you walked in this morning? I know, I know for some of us, it's a, it's a bit of a, a stretch to walk into church and to see in March, April, the Christmas story as the title of a, a message. I know for some of us, it's, you know, we're, we're in Lent. Why are we, why are we talking about Christmas in Lent? My, my family absolutely loves Christmas. Maybe a little too much. Maybe just just a little bit too much. We're that family that keeps the Christmas decorations up until the last minute at, a, at the end of Epiphany. We, we we keep our Christmas cards from friends and families displayed until Valentine's Day in February. But my kids just just yesterday, my son was singing Jingle Bells. So so maybe it's a family thing. I I, I and I know for some of you it might be it might be kind of hard to be here. Say no, it's it's Easter season. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I, and I put on my pastel-colored shirt this morning, kind of Easter on the top, but 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 Christmas, Christmas on my socks, Christmas on, on my socks. I have no problem talking about Christmas any time of the year because the the truth is, for for those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians, there are two stories that shape our identity. There there are two stories. They are Christmas and. Easter, Easter. We're an Easter people, which means we, we cling to the hope that comes with the resurrection. And we are a, a Christmas people, which means that the, the birth of Jesus, God becoming human and, and entering our, our human experience, experiencing all the sorts of things that, that we experience, how to navigate relationships, hunger, sleep deprivation, Frustration, fear, nerves, all of those sorts of things that we, we fear, recognizing that He entered that experience. He entered that experience, and, and because He entered that experience, we're given a way that we should kind of approach the world our, our, ourselves. We're a people who cling to hope, and we are a people who live with purpose. An Easter and a Christmas people. So as we dive into the familiar story of Christmas, maybe at an odd time for some of us, I'd ask us to see the incarnation, God in the person of Jesus moving into our human experience as an invitation to think about how we live with purpose, how we fit into the human experience that that we have daily. It had been over 400 years since Malachi had prophesied. Remember, we've been journeying through the story. We, we, we've ended the, the part of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And so it had been over 400 years since Malachi had last prophesied. And as Peter reminded us last week, Judah had become this place that was, was kind of an insignificant blip on the map. That the people just kind of had forgotten about in the rest of the world. And for the most part, the people who lived in Jerusalem, they, they could be split into two groups. This is oversimplifying it, but for, for today's purposes it will make sense. There are two groups. Some people went to temple. 
But, but most had, had kind of grown apathetic. They, they, got, they went through the motions of faith, but, but they didn't really hold any sort of deep conviction or, or their faith didn't motivate them to live differently. They, they just kind of went through the motions. That's one group. And then the second group was the group that represented those who were zealous, those who were, were devout, those who were constantly pushing the culture to, to a strong adherence of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the Mosaic Law, of the Torah. Today, we, we might label these folks extremists. They had a, a really strong connection with the Hebrew text. Some of those who were devout, they attached themselves to the temple. They stood on the street corners preaching. They, they commented on culture constantly and, and talked about how, how culture had gone away. They, they were those who said, hey, we need to get back to the temple being the center of our life. Others got tired of the watered-down faith that lived in Jerusalem, and they said, you know what, we're out of here. We're, we're going to the mountains. We're going to the mountains and starting our own thing where we can be devout there. One of those groups, some of you may know, was the Essians. The Essians are the group that, that went to caves that were uh, about a couple hours away from, from Jerusalem that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they said, hey, we're out of here. We need to find a space where we can be devout away from this watered-down faith. So when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they all start their, do- their Gospels a little differently from one another, but they all connect the past... Everything that I just talked about, everything that we've been looking at for the last six months with what was happening in the present. Early readers would have seen a connection between what Matthew does at the beginning of his gospel where he lists the genealogy. They would have read through the begats, begats, begats. They would have read through those in the same way that they saw the Hebrew text where they also talk through lineage over and over again. They'd likely read about John the Baptist in the beginning of Mark and Luke, and they'd say, oh, we've seen this picture before. We, we know what the prophets look like. And then, when they got to the part that Gene read earlier, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they would have heard in their mind the beginning of Genesis. And then they'd get to John 1.14 and they'd kind of pause. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. They would have paused. The Word, who was with God at the beginning of all time, the Word, who was God, took on flesh and dwelled in our midst. Their understanding of dwelling would have been shaped by their ancestors, where, where God dwelled in the tabernacle that was carried around, that God dwelled in the temple. Their understanding of, of dwelling, of abiding, would have been shaped by a world where, where God resided in a, a specific spot. And now... John is saying, God dwells in your midst, in in our midst. Or as one of my favorite translations from Eugene Peterson puts it, the Word made flesh moved into the neighborhood. 
the moment of God, the movement of God toward us, God coming and being with humankind, is incredibly important for understanding John's gospel. But really, it's incredibly important for understanding the good news of the gospel as a whole. It's a reminder that God always moves first. God creates. God loves. God plans. God extends grace and mercy. And we respond to what God does. And as God moves toward us in the person of Jesus, we're given a model of how we should approach the world ourselves. Following Jesus and moving toward others so they might experience God's love as well. John moves right from the incarnation, this this kind of big picture of the Christmas story of God moving toward us. He moves from there into Jesus inviting others to be a part of what God was doing. Starting at John chapter 1, verse 35, we read this. The next day, John was there again, and, the, and two of his disciples, was with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. One of the first people who saw the Christmas story as an invitation to participate in what God is doing in the world was John the Baptist. The Christmas story was an invitation for John the Baptist to be a part of what God was doing in the world. He's there with two of his disciples, two of the people who he mentors, two of the people from his church, and he points them toward Jesus. There's a lot that today's church can, can learn from John the Baptist and what he does here. It's not about himself. About gaining a bigger following of his own. About growing his own congregation. He's about pointing people to Jesus. His calling is the same as ours. We are called to introduce people to Jesus. The two men, they respect John and they listen to him. And they start walking with Jesus. They start walking with Jesus. And Jesus notices them and says, Hey, what do you want? Couldn't put it more direct. What do you want? Why are you following me? What do you want? The uh, closer translations of his first words here would be, What is it that you're seeking? What are you looking for? Do you realize what you're getting into? Do you know what I'm really about? Are you really ready to leave John and and follow me? It's the same sort, same type of questions we're asked when we commit to following Jesus. Do we really know what we're getting ourselves into? And they respond, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. The invitation to come and see is an invitation to search out their curiosity. To come and do their own work to discover who Jesus was and is. There's so much going on here with Jesus' first invitation. Notice that he doesn't try to prove anything. He doesn't try to defend himself or or tell them why John the Baptist was right when he called out, look, the Lamb of the God. He He doesn't try any of those things. He just says, hey, come, come and look. 
Come and you will, you will see. He invites them to witness what God is doing. Now over the last couple months, we've had quite a few conversations here at WPC uh, around our, our core values, uh, around what it looks to be a, a welcoming church. And we've had conversations with our Vision 2020 team, with our, our staff, with our session. A couple weeks ago, we had a, a lunch with our ushers and with our, our greeters and with our, our hosts to talk about, well, what does it mean to be a hospitable church? What does it mean to be a welcoming church? And they've all been wonderful conversations. Being welcoming is important. But I wonder if it goes far enough. The model Jesus sets here isn't one that is just welcoming. It's not only welcoming. It's also inviting. He invites John's two disciples, Simon, well, or Andrew and whoever's with Andrew, to come with their questions. He says, come. Come and bring your questions. It's an invitation. Now, if we want to be the sort of church that that points people toward Jesus, we have to learn to extend the same type of invitation to people we know. Last week I was doing some research on on the state of the the church in the United States today. Uh, There's a research firm... It's actually not based too far from here, called the Barna Group that does all sorts of studies on, on faith and culture and how the two work together, or how the two interact with one another. And I read two reports. One is on how today's church, people who are in today's church, understand the Great Commission. And the other is on how different people, both those inside and outside the church, view sharing their personal faith. of people who consider themselves church attenders, Barna defined that as someone who had been to church within the last six months. They interviewed thousands of people. More than half of the people couldn't point out the Great Commission when it was set up next to other Scripture passages. Jesus' call to make and baptize disciples, to teach them to obey what Jesus taught, more than half of people who attend church, couldn't say, oh yeah, that's what Jesus has called us to do. And a similar percentage thought it was actually wrong or offensive to share our faith with other people. These are people within, within the church. Both reports found that we, those of us inside the church today, don't do a very good job of following Jesus' model of being inviting not just here at WPC, that's, that's across the church in the U.S. We, we aren't inviting, in fact, one of the studies found that, that most people who are in the church are a little socially awkward. So, so when we in, extend invitations, people don't know how to respond because we're, we're, we're a little socially awkward when we talk about our, our faith. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to stand here and point fingers at, at you or at other people in the church, the thousands of people that provided this research, it's something that impacts me personally, too. If I go to a great restaurant, right? If you go to a great restaurant, I have no problem telling the world about how good the food is. I'll take pictures. I'll post them on Instagram. I'll post them on social media. I'll say, you need to try. Have you tried this barbecue? I'm, 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 I'm excited about it. I want to draw people in to say, hey, you need to go to this restaurant. 
But the moment someone in that restaurant comes up to me and says, Hey, what do you do? I, because as soon as I say I'm a pastor, it opens a whole can of worms. I say, Oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to, want to talk about this. We need to train ourselves to go beyond welcoming in the church today. We have to learn to be inviting, even if that means opening ourselves up to uncomfortable conversations. The two disciples, they they follow Jesus all day, and we don't know exactly what they talk about as they're walking along, but we do know that it was enough for Andrew to go, find his brother, and enthusiastically say to his brother Simon, Hey, we found the Messiah! We found it in one day. We found the Messiah. Andrew is the first to connect the dots of the story, to connect the dots of what we've been looking at as a church over the last few months. We've found the Messiah, the one who fulfills everything our ancestors of Israel hoped for. We found him. He's with us. Come and see. Oh, do, you, do you see the invitation there? He shares the good news and then invites the people he cares about to come and see The invitations continue. The next day, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to them, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you see a pattern here? As Jesus' ministry begins, Jesus invites someone to follow him. That person follows, then invites someone else to be a part of the movement. And Nathaniel cries out, Nazareth! Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And we see that Nathaniel was, was from Cana, a place where, where Jesus later turns water into wine at a wedding. And, and both Cana and Nazareth were, were towns in Galilee, but they didn't quite get along with one another. And typically, people from Judah look down on Galileans. So you've got two Galilean towns that don't really get along, and you, you hear about this guy coming from Judah. But, but even fellow Galileans, they despise Nazareth. Nothing good could come from, from Nazareth. It was seen as dirty, poor, uneducated. You'd only really go there if you absolutely had to. Today in Southern California, Nathaniel might say something along the lines of, Skid Row? Why would you listen to anybody from Skid Row? Why why would you follow anyone from, from Skid Row? And Philip responds with an invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Does Philip argue with Nathaniel? This is the response part. No. Does Philip argue with Nathaniel? No. Does Philip try to prove that he's right? Does Philip keep shame on Nathaniel for for asking a question? No. There is a huge difference between being inviting and being intrusive. An invitation asks someone if they want to come on a journey with you. An intrusion is an invasion. 
An invitation piques someone's curiosity. It leaves a person comfortable to ask questions, knowing they won't be judged for what they say. An intrusion forces answers before the questions are even asked. Philip extends an invitation to Nathaniel in the same way that Andrew extends an invitation to Simon Peter, following the same model that Jesus used when he invited them to come and see. And as Philip and Nathaniel approach Jesus, he says, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, it was common for Palestinian Jews to call one another Israelites. It kind of connected their, their history to, to one another. It was a title that validated the other person, almost saying, I, I know what you're about. I, I know what your experience looks like. I'm familiar with how you struggle. I'm familiar with your, your questions. We're, we're on the same page. It's leveling the playing field. And Nathaniel asks, How? How do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. There's some debate around whether or not Jesus actually sees Nathanael at a fig tree or if it's just a figure of, of speech. The, the fig tree was a common place for people to kind of go and, and to reflect, to, to kind of do some soul searching. Um, it was a, a kind of common place for people to go. So whether or not he actually sees Nathaniel in that place or just knows that he is searching, uh, th- there's some debate around that. For us, it might be a ki- kind of like our prayer garden right out here where people go to spend time alone to reflect, to pray, to meditate. For, for some of us, that might be the beach. For others of us, that might be trails in the mountains. The place where you kind of go to say, okay, I'm going to ah, spend some time searching. So Jesus says, I... I know you've been searching. I know you've been searching. And if Nathaniel hadn't been searching, the reality is he probably wouldn't have accepted Philip's invitation to come and see what this man from Nazareth was all about. And Jesus meets him where he's at in the search. Then Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, when you put together those, those three titles, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel, when you put together those, those three titles, we get a pretty complete picture of Jesus' identity. And it's not that Nathaniel fully understands what each of those titles means. There's no way he could have. He's just beginning his journey with Jesus. But he is saying, okay, there is something about Jesus that sets him apart. There's something about Jesus that makes me want to follow Him and to invite others to be a part of this journey with me. There's a lesson for us here as well. It's the truth that we don't have to have everything figured out when we say yes to being a part of what God is doing in the world. Going back to the Christmas story, I think it's, it's hard to believe that, that Mary and Joseph had everything figured out when they begin their their journey as Jesus' earthly parents. That they couldn't have. They couldn't have. Jesus responds, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, because I found you while you were searching. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The you here isn't directed directly at Nathaniel. It's, it's the pearl you, or, or if you're in the south, it's the y'all. 
Very truly, I tell y'all that if you journey with me, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a reference to to Genesis passage. You, You will see things that you haven't seen before. You will experience things that you haven't experienced before, even if you don't have it all figured out yet. And that's exactly what happens with with the incarnation, with the story of Christmas. With the God of the universe stepping into our experience and dwelling among us. We get this glimpse of heaven and earth colliding. And as Jesus begins his ministry, he invites people to see those glimpses along the way. And along the way... We're invited today to play a proactive role in giving others that same glimpse. And we do that through invitation. We do that through being an inviting church. I'll never forget what it was like, and it was at some point during high school, where I was actually able to participate in the Roadie Christmas Family Gift Exchange. I mean, I had participated before, but I, I had a, you know, my, my parents had to give me money before I could buy presents, right? My, my, my parents had to say, okay, now they had to take me shopping. But when I was in high school, I had a job, so I was able to go and shop on my own. I could shop on my own. I could surprise my sister. I could surprise my parents. I can't remember what I got them. But it was exciting to take ownership of my role as a son and a little brother. With the Christmas story, we're reminded how much we are loved by God. We're reminded that the Creator of the universe sent His Son so that each of us might live in right relationship with that Creator. And we're reminded that we get to invite people to experience that love. May we be a church that moves beyond being welcoming and into being a proactive community that invites others to experience the good news that they are loved by God. Amen?